But we're going to start with Matthew chapter 11. I've been encouraged this morning with just some of the words that have been brought, because I feel it ties in with what I was wanting to bring uh, this morning. Um, because often we may have questions in our life about what is happening. Um, we, may have, we may ask questions like, well, when we pray for people to be healed, you know, why, why isn't everyone healed? When, why aren't I being healed? And it can be difficult then to, uh, to move on in God and to keep praying and keep trusting in God. Um, you know, why isn't God answering my prayers? Why isn't God doing things that he's promised he will? And they can all be difficult questions that we can, uh, that we can struggle with. And so I'm going to look at that today. Um, I'm going to look at a bit more than that, but that, that's going to be the, the crux of it. Hopefully, some of those questions will be answered, and I think God's already started to answer them this morning anyway, in some of the words that have been brought. But let's look at Matthew chapter 11, and we'll just read verses 1 to 6. The context of this, by the way, is um, Jesus has been healing the sick, he's been teaching people, he's been driving out demons, and now he's, he's sent his disciples to go out and do the same as well. In chapter 10, he's just been telling his disciples what to do. And then we'll come to the start of chapter 11. It says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So, as I say, Jesus has been going out, he's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, he's been preaching the good news, and now he's sending his disciples out to do the same thing. And John the Baptist has heard about this. Now, John is in prison. He's been imprisoned by Herod. We actually find out a bit about that later on. It's quite interesting. It mentions that he's in prison here. Later on, it explains uh, why he's in prison. We'll come to that in a moment. But John's in prison. And uh, if you look back at the start of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, we see John is coming with quite a different attitude than what he came with at first. If you flick back through to John chapter, sorry, to Matthew chapter 3, and uh, verse 7 talks about John the Baptist preparing the way. Uh, he's baptizing people in the river Jordan. And uh, from verse 7, we'll read it says, When he saw, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who want you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This guy, John, is a fiery kind of guy himself. He's dressed uh, in a kind of unorthodox way. It says he was, uh, he was dressed in, in clothes of camel's hair, a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was a bit of a wild man, and he was quite wild in what he said as well. Very strong in, uh, in what he's saying. These Pharisees and Sadducees coming uh, to find out what's happening, and John's saying, oh, you hypocrites, go away. Well, you know, don't come and say, we're God's children, we're children of Abraham. A strong, quite a scary kind of guy. Never one to mince his words, really, was John. And he was seemed, at that point, so certain of who Jesus was. Because uh, later on, after that passage that I just read, Jesus comes to be baptised. And uh, John says, well, no, I shouldn't be baptising you. He clearly recognises that Jesus is the one who was to come, the Messiah who he was preaching about. Um, so he's, uh, he's very clear on that. And uh, laying into the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And actually, he then turns his attention to Herod. And uh, that's when he gets in a bit of trouble. That's why he's in prison. In uh, Matthew 14.3, we see why he's in prison. It says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. Herod had, had gone off and seduced his own brother's wife. And he'd, he'd taken her and he'd, he'd, he'd had, had a relationship with her when he shouldn't have done. He's, he's then making her his own wife. I think he's divorced his previous wife. And John isn't standing for it. John's thinking, I need to speak out about this. Now, in one sense, you know, this, this Herod was a, a Roman citizen, but John's in there anyway because he knows what is right. He's so clear. He's so focused about it. He said, I'm going to proclaim God's standard. I'm going to proclaim God's truth. It was immoral. He's going to speak his mind, just in the same way that he'd spoken to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he would have been really emboldened about this because he would have known that the Messiah had arrived in the form of Jesus. See, John's thinking, this guy's finally come. The Messiah is here. The one I've been preaching about, he knows Jesus has come. And he feels and he thinks that the Messiah is going to come and bring a freedom for God's people and usher in a new creation, full of joy and of peace. One of the ways that John was thinking, though, in fact, the main way that I suggest John was thinking was in political terms. You see, he knew that Israel had been oppressed for a long time by many different political powers over the few hundred years before this time. The latest one was the Romans. And he believed, as many of the Jews believed, and we'll look at in more detail later, that the, the Messiah was going to be someone who was going to come and, as the Americans would say, to kick ass. He was going to come and he was going to kick them out. He was going to defeat the Romans. He was going to bring about this new political era, this kingship where the Messiah would rule and Israel would be back to its former glory and to the glory that God had always promised, not even just its former glory. You see, John's father had anticipated this as well. If we look in Luke chapter 1, we see John's father, Zechariah, 
um, he kind of prophesies about what the Messiah would be. Um, Luke chapter 1, and uh, from verse 68, he, he prophesies this. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesies, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he's redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So, Zechariah's recognizing that there's, uh, the Messiah's come, but in this, he's saying there'll be salvations from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. People in those times would have interpreted that as being the Romans. The Romans are the ones that hate us. It's obvious who is being spoken about. It's quite obvious because they're there day by day in their faces. Taxes, laws, they're in the country. They're occupied. It was going to be at the forefront of their thinking. That is how they interpret the prophetic words. They're interpreting it as this Messiah will come and he's going to defeat the Romans. Other passages in the Old Testament, they would have interpreted in a similar way. For, uh, we'll look at Isaiah 35 in a, in a few moments. Um, but that's another passage that they would have interpreted in a similar way, maybe. So John speaks out against Herod and he's thrown into prison. No problem, he thought. Jesus will soon be here with his great army. He'll come and he'll deliver me. He'll crush the Roman occupiers. He'll establish his mighty kingdom. Everything's going to be all right. I just need to sit tight and wait. And so he's there in prison. And he starts to hear reports of what Jesus is doing. But they're not the reports that he wants to hear particularly. Because he hears that Jesus is healing the sick. He's setting people free, casting out demons. He's preaching. But some of the things that he's preaching would have made John think, what's all this about? For example, Matthew 5 and 40, verse 44. Jesus is saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can you imagine the word getting back to John in prison, waiting for this final vindication, this final release? Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. John's thinking, what? Love your enemies? They've put me here in prison. I need to get out. That's that's not what the Messiah was going to be bringing. And then Jesus is sending out his disciples. What's he sending them out to do? To gather troops? To get the the army together? To storm into, into power? No. He's sending his disciples out to go from town to town. Take nothing with them. Pray for people to be healed. Heal people. Every disease and sickness. Drive out evil spirits. What? What's that about? That's not what was supposed to happen. And so you can imagine, over time, in prison, John is losing his confidence. He's not sure anymore who Jesus is. He's not sure whether he's got it right. Oh, he was so confident at first, but I'm not so sure now he's thinking. So he sends his disciples to go and speak to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come? Are you? Or should we expect someone else? It doesn't quite seem to be working out, Jesus, does it? That's the implication of what he's saying behind it. You know, he would have begun with great excitement and belief about who Jesus was. But now, 
Now he's beginning to doubt. Now it seems as though this new kingdom isn't being established. And we can have the same kind of issues ourselves. We can hear God's word about something, and we can get on board with it, and we can say, yes, we're behind this. Yes, God said this. And, and we're full of belief, and we're full of passion, and we're full of zeal, and, and we can be very bold and strident in some of the things that we say, even like John was. I remember being like that personally when, uh, when I, I, I came into to start work for the church. I wasn't an elder at that point, but I came in to start work for the church, um, working with Kids Club. And I believed I'd heard from God that God was going to do a great thing through Kids Club. I still believe it, but at that time, I interpreted it in quite a different way. And um, I was also hearing words of prophecy that were being brought, of Sheffield being a significant place. You know, I think God was going to pour out his, his spirit on Sheffield. There was going to be major things happening. Now, I'm not doubting now that those things are going to happen, but at the time, I was interpreting them in a specific way. I was thinking that that was going to be happening in the next weeks or months. And I, I remember telling people at the job that I was leaving, which was, which was with a Christian organization, I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm giving up this job with Tearfund because I'm going, to, I'm going to start working for the church in Sheffield. And you know, God's going to do an amazing thing in Sheffield. It's the place to be. You want to move to Sheffield, really. That's where it's all going to happen. And I'm, I'm interpreting it all in a certain way. And if you take that on board and keep hold of that, and that's your view of what's going to happen, then after a while you can start saying, hang on, what's going on? Things aren't quite happening as I thought. And that's what I had to work through. While still believing in what God has said. Because the danger is that you just think, I got it totally wrong. Actually, that, that word was wrong. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not accepting it anymore. And so we kind of go through our Christian life with no real expectation of what God's going to do. With no faith that God's going to do anything. We live with disappointment in our lives and unfulfilled expectations and promises. And it's just this kind of, yeah, well, where am I now? Okay, well, I'll go along. I'll, I'll, I'll come to church. I'll be part of it. But I don't, really, I don't really have that same fire that I used to have. And that's sad. Proverbs 13, verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And Bill Wilson says, If you don't want to get disillusioned about something, then don't get illusioned about it in the first place. Which is good advice. If you don't want to get disillusioned about it, don't get illusioned about it in the first place. And again, that doesn't mean let's not believe anything, let's not hope for anything, it means that it's important that the things that we're believing for and holding on to are the things that God has said. And trusting him, trusting God to work them out in his way and in his time. Let's try and not just project our expectations and our interpretations of things onto what God has actually said. Because we will only get disappointed. And later on, when things get tough, we'll just face these disappointments. We'll think maybe God's forgotten us. We'll think maybe God doesn't love us anymore. It's been so encouraging to hear the words that have been brought, just reassuring us this morning of God's love for us. Whatever the circumstances, God loves us and we're in him. If we don't have a good biblical understanding of how God works, we'll just end up 
uh, being disillusioned, or, or end up having to resort to some sort of Christian doublethink. If you've read 1984, you might know what that means. It's just trying to hold these two views in, 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 that don't make sense intentionally. Yeah, okay, we'll believe in God, but this is reality. It's not quite right. What was Jesus' response to John then? Because John's in a bit of a mess, really. And Jesus says, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is being preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. So Jesus is talking about what's actually happening in his ministry. I would imagine John already knew that. Because I think that was the problem. That John was thinking, it's this, but it's not this that I want. And Jesus is saying, no, these are the things that are happening. The, uh, the, the lame walk, the blind are receiving sight, leprosy are cured, deaf are healed, de- healed, dead are raised, the good news is being preached. Jesus is referring back in that to Isaiah 35. So let's have a look at Isaiah 35. Because it's good to remember that Jesus wasn't just coming in some sort of vacuum, there'd been words about the Messiah was throughout the whole of the Old Testament about what was going to happen. And these are some of the promises that people were holding on to. Isaiah 35 was a passage that was, in, that was taken to be talking about the Messiah and who the Messiah was. Uh, let's actually read the whole passage because it's good to get the whole context. Because if you look at the whole passage, you can see where people might start getting a skewed view of what's going to happen. Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, it will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there at all. But only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. What a wonderful passage proclaiming what God is going to do. And that's what people were believing then. And that's what I hope many of us are still believing for now. But at the time, that's what they're thinking. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to do all of these things. So Jesus is highlighting here verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leaping like a deer, the mute tongue shouting for joy. And Jesus is saying, look, blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing, the good news is being preached. 
So Jesus is saying, it's happening. Don't get disillusioned. It's happening. The the fulfillment of this prophecy is beginning. Now John, I think, hasn't focused on those verses. John is taking those verses and he's looking at the verse before and he's got stuck on it. He's got stuck on verse 4 and 3 and 4. 3 and 4. Strengthen the feeble hands. Now, remember, an oppressed people, an oppressed people in Israel under the Romans. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. John's holding on to that verse. And he's thinking, this is it. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is the one. He's going to come with vengeance and divine retribution. And then he's going to do all these other things as well. But the first thing, the immediate thing, the thing I'm preoccupied with, is the Romans are going to get defeated. And it's not happened. It's not happened. Are you getting kind of what I'm saying? If we interpret passages of Scripture or prophecies and just put a little twist on it, or just take one bit and ignore other bits, we can easily get the wrong end of the stick. We can twist scripture to fit whatever we want. People do it all the time. And people often do it with prophetic words as well. For example, you might get a prophetic word brought in a meeting. Maybe it's not even specifically for you. Maybe it is specifically for you. Someone can say something like, God wants you to know that he's with you. He's for you and he's with you. And we might take that to mean, oh, great. God's therefore giving approval to whatever plans I might have in my mind at the moment. So therefore, I've got this idea of what I want to do. I want a word from God. Okay, uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Yes, uh, last week, we took, uh, we took a bit of time out and uh, a day off holiday and we went to York for the day. And we, we loved it. We were walking around York. It was fantastic. They even got me to go in a few coffee places. I uh, didn't mind. Um, uh, but we, we, these delis and this fantastic, wonderful city. And as we were walking around, we were saying, oh, this would be a, this would be a nice place to live, wouldn't it? Do you, think, do you think God might be calling us to church, to, to, to move churches and go to York? We are kind of saying it as a joke, all right, don't worry. Well, actually, you might be quite pleased. But... <laughs> <laughs> so we're thinking, what about this? Now, just imagine we had, we had thought that seriously. This is a lovely place. Oh, I, I really like it. I really feel something good about this place here. Well, maybe God is saying to us, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll seek God. Maybe we'll see if there's a prophetic word that comes to just encourage us in this. And then a word comes. Something like, God wants you to know that he's for you. He's with you. And we can go, that's it. That's the word. That's confirmation of what God is wanting us to do. We had the idea about York, and now God's confirmed it by saying he's with us. Right, that's it. We'll go, we'll tell the leaders. Uh, I'll go and speak to Arnold. We're off to York. I'll go and speak to to Steve Hurd or whoever's leading a church in York. Um, We're off. We're going to York. But God's not said, go to York. We've just taken it in a certain way. We've wanted something. We've wanted to see it in a certain way. And then we've made something fit. 
instead of saying, God, what are you saying? What are you actually saying? And I believe that's what God, what John was doing uh, with Jesus and with the Messiah. You see, if we look at Isaiah 35, we actually see that much of what is in Isaiah 35 didn't happen during Jesus' ministry. Israel wasn't living free of fear of their enemies in the land. The Romans still occupied. The world wasn't transformed into the new creation that the passage speaks of. It's no wonder that John was beginning to doubt it. But what John hadn't fully understood was the tension between the kingdom of God being present in the coming of Jesus and the fact that it wasn't yet there fully. Jesus often speaks about the kingdom coming. The kingdom is, the kingdom is coming, and he sometimes says the kingdom has now come. And if you read the, the different bits in the Bible, you might think, come on, Jesus, make your mind up. Is it coming, or has it come? You keep saying different things. Kingdom is coming, kingdom has come. Well, actually, both. Because the kingdom is a now kingdom, but it's a not yet kingdom as well. It's partly here, because when Jesus came, he brought in the kingdom, and some of the things of the kingdom started to come in. And we see foretastes of that. So we see people being healed, and we see people being delivered from oppression, and we see people being set free. But we don't see everything that is going to come. There's partly a not yet element, that we're going to see that come in the future. And um, we're going to see... uh, We're going to see the culmination and the fulfillment of that, ultimately, when Jesus returns. So it was about a much bigger thing than the overthrow of the Romans, because it was about going way into the future. That's the way that God works. He does keep his promises, but he doesn't always do it in the way that people expect, and he doesn't do it in the timescales that people want either. And we can see through the whole of the Bible that that's always been the way God has worked. If we look at the Bible as a whole, we can see God working out his plans and purposes and fulfilling his promises through time. And what we're going to do for, the, for the, the, pretty much the remainder of what I'm going to bring now is just do that. I'm going to give you a quick overview from Genesis to the end of the Bible. All right? It should only take about, I reckon, about 11 hours. All right? <laughs> I've cut it down quite a lot. This is thousands of years of history. (laughs) I'll try and make it a bit faster. But hopefully we'll be able to see just what God is doing. God is working his purposes out, but at any given point in history, there will be people going, what's God doing? Where is he? I didn't think it was going to be like this. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that John is the same. Okay, here we go quick overview of the Bible. In Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham, and he promises him several things. He promises him land for his descendants to live in, and he promises him many descendants, and he promises that those descendants, those people, would be a blessing to everyone in the earth. Okay, so he's promised him land, descendants, and that they will be a blessing. But straight away, we have a problem. Because Abraham's wife, Sarah, is childless. She can't have children. She's been trying to have children. It's not happened. Abraham's going, what's going to happen? How can these things come about? That goes on for years and years and years until they're very, very old. Finally, in their old age, Sarah has a son. 
Isaac. Fantastic. We're off and running. Isaac marries Rebecca. Great. The line's going to continue. Oh, hang on. Rebecca is childless. Ah, no. Same old thing again. This isn't really getting off to a very fast start. God's made a promise. Where are we up to? Well, Abraham's got one son, and it looks as though that's going to be where it ends. But again, they seek God, and then they have a child. Okay. Jacob. Um, uh, so there we are. Um, and also, let's look at the land thing. With Abraham's wandering around. He's left his home. They're going to the promised land, but they're nomads. They're just wandering around in this land. They are actually in the land, but, you know, it's full of other people. It's just Abraham and his family, and not very many family. And they're wandering around, and they're like, so what are we supposed to do here then? And going backwards and forwards, it doesn't really look as though things are happening looks discouraging, but yet God was at work. Finally, though, it looks as though God was beginning to fulfill some of his promises. Jacob has 12 sons. That's a lot better, isn't it? 12 sons. And in Exodus, we begin to see the coming about of the countless seeds of Abraham. You read through Exodus, the number of Israelites is increasing and increasing. It's fantastic. It's starting to happen. They were also, at this point, in slavery in Egypt. That's the story of Joseph, shows how they went to Egypt. Then they were made slaves. And then they finally brought out of slavery in Egypt by Moses. And uh, God makes a covenant with Moses and the people in Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments, um, and it's all looking okay again. But the people rebel. This is what Arnold was preaching about uh, fairly recently in Exodus. They rebel, they start to grumble, they build an idol out of a golden calf. Build a golden calf out of, to make an idol. Um, they don't just find a golden calf and think, let's make an idol out of it. And then they end up wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They're not going in. Finally, they get into the land under the leadership of Joshua. And actually, God is working powerfully in miracles there. They march around um, the walls of Jericho. Uh, and the seventh time, the walls fall down. They go in, they storm it. They're taking over the land. Finally, they're getting into the land. So God, in that period, now that's a long period of time, God is working out his purposes. At any given moment, it could look pretty bad. However... It's looking good, but the Israelites fail to live as a holy people. So God then raises up other nations to come and oppress them and enslave them. Um, This is through the book of Judges. You can read about this. Every time uh, a a nation would come and oppress them, uh, the people would then go, oh, better call out to God. They'd call out to God. God would raise up someone uh, who could then come and defeat that enemy, like someone like Gideon. Um, They go and defeat the enemy. Fine, we're, we're living under God's, uh, God's rule again. But then, no, they go off, worship idols. God comes in and oppresses them. It's the same old pattern. You get very depressed if you start reading through um, the book of Judges. Because it, they just don't seem to learn. It's just time and time and time again. And, uh, in fact, at the end of Judges, um, Judges 17 kind of sums it up. Um, Judges 17, verse 6, says, Israel had no king Everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, it's pretty dismal. Israel then decides to ask God for a king. God doesn't really want to do that. He says, look, I'm your king. They say, no, no, we want a king like these other nations. So God graciously gives them a king. He gives them Saul. Saul starts off quite well. 
He starts off quite humble. Um, he submits to God. But very soon he leaves God's ways and starts to do things with earthly wisdom. So God, God turns his hand against Saul. He raises up David, who is, uh, he calls a man after God's own heart. And things again were looking very good. David wanted to build a house for God, a, t- a temple. But God said, well, no, you can't do that because you've spilled blood in war. Um, but God did promise him that he would um, build a house for David that would last forever. In other words, he was saying the promises of God would come about through a king who was a descendant of David. So things looking up again. But, once again, it starts to go wrong. David's sin causes Israel to spiral downwards. Uh, and uh, he almost loses the kingship himself, does David. Uh, his son, Solomon, takes over. Uh, Solomon starts well. And in fact, some people would have thought, Solomon's going to be the one. We've had this promise about a king, a descendant of David, who's going to bring us into all of this liberation. And people would have probably thought that Solomon was going to be that one. He started off very well. He built the temple. Um, but his many wives encouraged him to start to worship idols. And after Solomon had died, the kingdom was split into two, Judah and Israel. And uh, then we read about all the different kings in books like the Chronicles. Um, we read about all the different kings of Judah and Israel. And, um, you know, there were some good kings in Judah, but not many. Most of them were bad kings and not leading well. In Israel, I don't think there were any good kings at all. Um, things are just going downwards again. You're thinking, well, God, where are you in this? But, um, and both kingdoms were captured Um, Israel was captured by the Assyrians in 722 BC Judah was captured by the Babylonians in 586 um, BC and the Babylonians destroyed the temple that Solomon had made and uh, they all went into exile from the land things again not looking good we then have the period of the prophets um, so Isaiah um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel Um, some of the other prophets, the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament, and they proclaimed God's judgment on on, on on Israel and on Judah because of the way they were. God's proclaiming judgment. But they also spoke of a glorious hope. And they spoke of a day when God's kingdom would come and when he would save his people. They spoke of a new day of the Spirit being poured out and that God's people would then keep his law. And again, things start to look up a little bit. The people return from exile in, in the year 536. Um, and a new temple was built in place of the one that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, and some people rejoiced and they said, this is fantastic. This is God coming about, bringing about his purposes. But Ezra 3 and verse 12 says that those who'd seen the former temple, those who'd seen what it was like before, wept when they saw the new temple. Because they just thought, it's not, it's not what it should be. It's not as good. There was something that just, this wasn't it. This wasn't all that they'd been waiting for. Israel was just in a low state, again spiritually, and many different powers came in and, and, were, and just took hold and took capture of them and uh, they were subject to different ones before finally the Romans came in and the Romans occupied the land. And that, that is the place where it's at when John is coming and then Jesus arrives. That's where we've got to at that point. 
So when Jesus began to preach, the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of God is here, in Matthew 4.17, people didn't say, what do you mean? I don't understand this. What do you mean the kingdom of God is here? They would have thought they knew exactly what God meant. They would have thought, it's finally the end of this oppression is going to happen. Finally, there's going to be a new dawn um, of everyone being, worshipping God, Israel's God. Finally, you know, Jesus is going to rule as king. The exile would be over. Um, new creation would come. God will pour out his spirit. And as we've said, that's what John was expecting. But it started to look as though, once again, that's not happening. So up until now, and we'll, we'll look at the New Testament in a second, you can see that at no point, at no point did God bring about what he'd promised in a manner in which people were expecting. Everyone would have thought at the time, at a place in history, they would have been expecting probably God to be doing a certain thing, and it seemed as though God was doing something else. It would have been very confusing. But, looking back, you can see that God is fulfilling his purposes throughout the whole of history. He's not just dashing expectations. He is working his purposes out, and he still is today. And we can see on beyond what John could see. We, can, we know now more than John knew then, because we have the New Testament. In fact, John didn't get to find out much more, because he was actually beheaded by Herod. Things didn't get a lot, whole lot better for John. But even this was a sign of what was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus lived his ministry out, healed, preached the good news, and then he died on the cross. And in that moment of what looks like defeat and despair, again, it looks again like, wow, he's the Messiah and now he's died. He's been killed on the cross. It's all over. His disciples thought that. The people would have thought that. In that one moment of Jesus' death on the cross, he finally defeats the power of sin and death. Jesus bears the wrath of God, the fury of God, which had been stored up to be poured out upon all people for sin, it goes on Jesus and brings about a freedom for those who trust in him. Two days after dying, he's miraculously raised to life. And he comes around and he, he shows his wounds and he appears to people. He's a risen saviour. And then even then, at the start of Acts, the disciples haven't quite got it. Start of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, When they met together, the disciples asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You can actually imagine how they said it. We've gone through all this. Lord, is it now? Are you now going to restore the kingdom? Now do we get the swords out? Now do we storm in? You know, you've risen from the dead. And Jesus says, It's not for you to know the dates and times that the Father has set by his own authority. They're like, what? We still don't know. Oh, come on. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're having the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus then ascends to heaven. Where's he, Where's he gone now? It's no wonder it says the disciples were left staring into the sky. 
But the Spirit was poured out. You read about it in Acts 2. The gospel did spread, first of all among the Jews, then among the Gentiles or non-Jews through Paul. Paul gets miraculously converted, has, a, has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, totally turned around from what he was doing in persecuting the, the, uh, the Christians. And uh, he starts proclaiming the gospel and goes to the, to the non-Jews, people who were not initially part of God's people because he saw that God was expanding who his people were. It's not just about a nation anymore. It's not just a little uh, political thing. It's about a whole earth. It's about God creating a people, the church, in the whole earth. And we see that in some of the letters that he writes. Um, People continued to be healed and demons were cast out and people were raised from the dead. And that's continued over the 2,000 and odd years of the church. Although in that time there have been long periods where nothing seems to have been happening and then other times when God's activity has been phenomenal in revival power, breaking out into different places and communities. And the end of the story we get as well. That's why it's good to have uh, the end of the book. And Revelation tells us what the end of the story is going to be. That the final coming of the kingdom, the kingdom that is at the moment now, but isn't quite here fully yet, the final coming of the kingdom will occur when Jesus returns and he judges the living and the dead. And then he will rule and reign forever over those who've come into the salvation that is won for them and have come into living relationship with him. Now hopefully, as we've just gone through that, it didn't take 11 hours, it took about a quarter of an hour. Hopefully, in looking at that quick overview of the whole of the Bible, we can see that God is very much at work in bringing about his plans and his purposes. The Old Testament prophecies, like in Isaiah 35, may not have been fully realized yet, but surely they will be. Just as surely as God has been working out his plans and purposes in history up until now. And we can have faith that this will happen. When things happen in our lives that we think, this doesn't quite fit with my expectation, we don't have to think, therefore, just throw it all out of the window. We can still hold on because God's kingdom is here in part, but it isn't here in full yet. And we can still believe that God will keep his kingdom advancing. God's kingdom is advancing powerfully. And in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12, Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. He's encouraging us there, let's not be passive about this. Let's not just adopt a wait-and-see approach. Let's not, if if we're sick, just think, God might heal me, he might not. I'll wait and see. Let's not adopt that sort of approach when when we're preaching the word and the gospel and believing for people to come through into his kingdom and be saved. Oh, there's a response here. We'll see if people are saved or not. We'll see if anyone responds. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Let's forcefully take hold of this that God has put in us. The kingdom of God is advancing forcefully and forceful men and forceful women take hold of it. Let's not get downcast like John when we face hardships and setbacks because we can expect to see the signs of the kingdom which the the disciples saw. 
We can expect to see healings amongst us. We can expect to see people delivered. We can expect to see signs and wonders. We can even expect to see people being raised from the dead. Because that's what Jesus said. You will do many of these miracles. You will do even greater things than I am doing. It might not happen to us in the way that we want. It might not happen to the per- with the person or people we want it to happen with. But it will be happening because it's God's kingdom is here. It is present. Yet it's not fully healed. So not everyone is going to be healed until the time comes. We've not got the fullness of it yet. But there will be healings. There will be signs and wonders. And when the end comes, as we see in Revelation 21, we'll know what it will be like. Revelation 21 and verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. That is when we'll see the fullness of these prophecies. That is when we will see everyone living without pain and sickness and fear. And there'll be no more tears. And until then... We're living in this in-between time where the kingdom is here, but it hasn't fully come. Therefore, there is still sickness. There is still pain. There is still suffering. Yet God's kingdom can invade people's lives and turn them around and bring about healness and bring about restoration and bring freedom from captivity. This is the year of the Lord's favour. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And Isaiah uh, 55 speaks about that as well. You know, as God's kingdom advances, we can keep expecting more. John said earlier today, it's coming. The same as the snow is coming. God's kingdom, it's coming. It'll be more than we expect. And it will keep advancing. And we can keep praying for it. And we can keep calling on God to break out in revival power as increasingly his kingdom advances before the day. Finally, the last thing I want to look at today is another passage. And we're looking very briefly at this. Isaiah 61, which is another passage that was interpreted and taken to mean, and do believe means, about the Messiah coming. Isaiah 61 the year of the Lord's favour. And uh, Jesus quoted this as well when he started his ministry in Luke 4. He quotes this. And one of the things it says is, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. It's very interesting if you look, if you compare Isaiah 61... And Luke 4. Luke 4 and verse 18. Jesus quotes. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim, preach good news to the poor. He's sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And you think, hang on, Jesus, you've missed something out. You've missed something out. You've missed the line about the day of vengeance of our God. And that wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't just think, ah, there's another bit. No, I can't remember it. Never mind. It was a deliberate thing. Because Jesus was coming and he was saying, I'm here. This is, and he says, this, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says, this is what's happening. And now is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He wasn't saying God's changed his mind. He wasn't saying he's forgetting about the vengeance thing. But that comes later on. That will come. Jesus will return. And he will judge the living and the dead. And that will be the day of vengeance for those whose sins haven't been forgiven because they haven't accepted that Jesus' death on the cross wiped away the guilt and the shame and all and took the punishment and the anger of God. And those who haven't accepted that will face this judgment and they will face the day of vengeance of God. But Jesus was in effect saying, that's not today. Today is the day, the year of the Lord's favour. Today is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55 and verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. We're in a time now when we can seek the Lord and he will be found. We're in a time now when we can know the year of the Lord's favour in our lives. And we don't have to suffer and endure the day of the vengeance of God. But make no mistake, that day is coming. In the same way that God has been working out his plans and his purposes and bringing about his kingdom in from the very start of the Bible up until now, and we've got the promise of the end and we know where it's going, and we're kind of living in this near the end time, in the same way that God is bringing about and his promises are true, he will fulfill that as well. There will be a day of vengeance. There will be a day of reckoning. There will not be any escape. And I want to encourage those of us who are here today who don't know God, who don't know about this wonderful saviour, this messiah, who isn't just a political being, but he's come and he's brought freedom. Freedom and joy and forgiveness. If you don't know him, I urge you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. We don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when the day of vengeance will be. But for those who don't know him, come, confess your sin, give your life to him, find him today. I urge you.